Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. What do you know about Manhattan? I have been there once in my life. The buildings are very tall. I don't know where I'm. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going yeah, with this. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, well, okay. Let's talk about the Manhattan Project. Oh yeah, I know a lot about that. <laughs> this is linear digressions. All right, so what are we talking about? So we're going to be talking about a thing. It's a type of Monte Carlo generator. We've talked about Monte Carlos a little bit in this, like fake data that you make for yourself, little simulations that you run. But this is one that got its or, had its origins in the Manhattan Project. And so we're going to sort of tell that story, how it gave birth to this cool sort of uh, type of simulation that people run. All right, that sounds pretty cool. Just for review, Monte Carlo... Making a Monte Carlo is making a bunch of fake data which is consistent with the way something actually happens. Like for particle physics, you'd have a whole bunch of fake data which if you can solve this fake data, then you could apply those methods to your your searching for a particle. Uh, yeah, that was well put. Another thing that people use it a lot for is to understand sort of like the statistical properties of certain types of distributions. But yeah, yeah. So how, how do they apply in this? So one of the things that's true about Monte Carlos is that they're computationally can be quite expensive. And there isn't really a good way to run a simulation in most cases without a computer. So the beginning of the computing era is really the beginning uh, of the time where Monte Carlo simulations became really possible. So 50 years ago, you don't find people doing this because right. there just aren't computers to do it. Right. They just don't have, yeah, they can't do the simulations. There are maybe one or, there are a few that maybe you could come up with, but uh, they're, they're quite rare. Um, so then the question is, well, what was going on 50 years ago? So they started figuring out how to make computers. That went hand in hand with a major sort of scientific project that was happening at the time, which is the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. The atomic bomb, right? Right. So there were all of these scientists, um, the best physicists in the world were all living out in Los Alamos together, trying to figure out how to get uh, basically uranium to, to fission in a proper way. The thing about nuclear bombs, so this is, this is me nerding out with uh, physics a little bit. So here's the way a nuclear bomb works, roughly, okay. is it's a combination of uranium-235, 238, and other stuff. Uranium-235 fission. So it breaks apart, and that's the thing that really drives the explosion as that, we that's think of the, it. That's the, the bomby stuff. Yes. The stuff that we think about when we see the, the explosion and all that. That's it's the, the stuff, stuff that, really, that really pops it, yeah. So 235 is fissile, but the, th the isotope that actually occurs in nature is 238. So okay. if you were to go out and just like dig up some dirt, uh, there would be some uranium in the dirt, and it would be 90-some percent... 238 and maybe 1% 235. And that's the reason that you can't make a nuclear bomb out of the stuff that you dig out of your backyard is that you uh, need this enrichment okay. process. So, in so that's what nuclear, that's what um, enrichment is, yes. is it's taking this relatively benign stuff and turning it into this fissile stuff, the stuff that will fission. Well, it's basically, yeah, like, like sifting out the atoms of 235 and, and concentrating them. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Um, so then in a nuclear bomb, you might have something that's like 90% enriched 235. Is that why there are centrifuges in that process? Because you spin it really fast and you it, some of it is heavier and yeah. some of it's lighter? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. All right. Yeah. The second thing about uh, nuclear bombs, this might come as no surprise, is it's a chain reaction. Mm -hmm. So you get the first atom to fission and it spits out. So it breaks into two pieces, two big... Uh, 
you know, nuclei, maybe like some cesium and some iodine or something like that. And then there will be several neutrons that come out in addition to your two big uh, like fission products. And then are those neutrons the things that hit the next couple of atoms? Exactly. Mm. But it's a very complicated process because whether they get, whether they cause fissions or just get absorbed or get reflected, like bounced off of something else, is this very complicated function of the material that they're in and also how fast the neutrons are moving. Mm, Okay. So there's this whole sort of very complicated uh, differential equation, effectively, that you have to understand. And it's a function of the geometry of the material that you're using. Because they can also just, if you have, you can imagine a, uh, an atom on the surface that fissions, chances are the neutrons are just going to fly off into space. Hmm. Um, They're so not going to hit the stuff yeah, on the other it's, side. Yeah, it's not going to cause a chain reaction. Whereas if there's something that's right in the middle that fissions, then the neutrons have more chances to interact. They have they to go somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, as these reactions are going, then you might start with this really nice ball of uranium-235, but then after a billionth of a second, you have something that's got a bunch of cesium and iodine and all this other junk in it, the fission, product, uh, the fission products of the reactions that are ongoing. So you also have sort of a changing environment in the sense that now maybe you don't have to just understand how a neutron is going to interact with the uranium, but you have to understand how it's going to interact with all of these secondary and tertiary decay products. This sounds like if we had computers, this would be a really great job for them to kind of model this over time. That is where we're going with this, basically. Ooh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so now we've set the stage. So let me tell you a little bit of sort of the apocryphal story. So there's this physicist named Stan Ulam uh, in 1946, and he's a genius. And he's working on the Manhattan Project. And he gets sick. And he's sitting in the hospital for a couple weeks, convalescing, getting better. And he plays a lot of solitaire. Because what what else are you going to do in the hospital? Mm -hmm. But he's brilliant. And so solitaire is kind of boring for him. He's like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a little assignment for myself. I'm going to try to solve the game of solitaire. Am I going to win a game of solitaire based on sort of the initial conditions, right? What I know about the cards when I deal them out to myself. But then there's also this element of randomness because yeah, I don't yeah. know that the cards that are in there. Yeah. And basically with cards, things are combinatorially very, very complicated. And so he starts to try to write out this model and figures out that it's really hard. And he's like, oh, you know what would actually just be easier is if I p- just played 100 games of solitaire and then just see <laughs> like what happens. And so then John von Neumann comes and visits him Mm -hmm. and uh, the very famous mathematician. And he mentions this to von Neumann. He's like, oh, by the way, this is this thing that I'm working on. And here's how I think a better solution is just to play a bunch of solitaire. And von Neumann's like, what if each game of solitaire is a neutron, right? And then you model each neutron as it propagates through the different steps, as it is reacting with the other neutrons, it's getting absorbed, it's getting scattered, it's getting reflected, it's getting lost. You watch uh, then the effects of, of those steps as it goes through it, and we simulate it that way. So rather than trying to understand every little step of the problem, just run through the problem a hundred times or something like that and yeah. see where you end up. Yeah. And that was exactly what he proposed. In fact, there's this really great old letter that I found of his where he's describing this method to another physicist uh, named um, Robert Richtmeier. 
Mm-hmm. And he's stepping through it, and he at some point he says, so you have a card for each neutron, because remember, they're doing punch card programming at this point. Uh. <laughs> and then each neutron, if there's a, a fission and you get three new neutrons, then you throw out the old card that was the old neutron, and you, you have three new cards that get introduced in the process, and a person can enter a card this fast. And basically, we could go through 100 steps of 100 neutrons in five hours, which, of course, this would take like no time today be incredibly simple. But this is one of the first times that they were actually starting to think about this. So how is this relevant today then? So one of the problems that they had to solve in order to get this whole simulation working, the solution that they came up with is what's still used today. And it's uh, this foundation of a method called Markov chain Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. So you remember a Markov chain. uh, This was the example from uh, Random Kanye. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that's a that's a fun episode if you want to listen to random Kanye West lyrics and how they're generated. Yeah, so the takeaway message for what what's important for a Markov chain is that a Markov chain is is memoryless, in the sense that you're standing at a point and it doesn't matter how you got there, you just step forward based only on the fact that you're at that point. Mm-hmm. Yes, kind of like navigation, you get to an intersection, you choose which way you want to go. It doesn't really matter necessarily where you like what you did at the previous intersection. Yeah, exactly. And if you can make that simplifying assumption that it's it's sort of path independent in a way, then that can make the computation a lot easier. Uh-huh. Um, but you also have to be figuring out which way you're going to go. There's usually going to be probability that's involved. Like if you hit a, neut- a nucleus with a neutron, is it going to fission or is it going to be absorbed? Well, actually it could do either with a certain probability. And so in order to understand those probabilities, you need to be able to effectively take integrals of weird functions. And as it happens, taking integrals of weird functions is something that is surprisingly difficult for a computer to do. And that's one of the things that was really revolutionized also in a, about seven or eight years later by a, another um, mathematician named Metropolis. And so there's now, which is a great that's name. A, right? that's a, yeah, that's a heck of a name. <laughs> I Googled this and it's like, giving me a bunch of uh, results for Superman's hometown. Oh no. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, So there's this Metropolis-Hastings algorithm, and that's basically a way that you can sample from an integral that you don't actually know what the integral is, but you can still figure out the answer. So let me give you kind of an analogy. Wow, this is getting pretty mathy. Yeah, so basically what you need to do is you need to be able to come up with, you need to be able to say what the area of weird shapes is. Think of it that way. So I hand you a piece of paper that has a weird shape on it. Oh, I've okay. Drawn it. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, I see that. And the shape is connected, so it's closed in, and I say something to you like, if I were to paint this shape on the parking lot, how much paint would I need hmm. exactly? And so I need to find some way of calculating the area of that. Right. And then, you know, I don't know, multiplying it over the area that I'm covering and then figure out how much paint I need. And I probably wouldn't be able to do it very efficiently if I'm calculating exactly. So I would make some shortcuts. I'd maybe imagine like, what if this weird splotchy shape actually was more of a ellipse or something? And that's suddenly a much simpler problem to solve. Yeah, so that's one thing you can do is you can start to make those simplifying assumptions. Mm -hmm. But this method is different. But it has problems, yeah. Here's here's the physicist's answer to this problem. Is it tastes like, okay, give me the shape on a piece of paper. Then I would cut out the shape. Uh-huh. I would take the piece of paper that is now the shape. I would weigh it. And then I would take an original piece of paper that hasn't been cut up. 
and I would weigh that. And let's say that the shape weighs one gram and a full piece of paper weighs two grams. Then you know that. Then the, I know how much yeah. of a, and I, and I can measure the area of a sheet of paper really easily, right? So I say like one gram of, of paper means that I have to buy one gallon of paint. So oh, that, that's that means a I really, have to go buy a, a gallon of paint because that's, that's how much really it interesting. Yeah, it's it's taking an assumption that the paper is of the same thickness, and then you can just measure the mass difference instead of actually having to measure the area. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so what you do is you you take this function that you need to find the integral of. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you take this shape and you just start kind of pinging it with random numbers, and you ask, is this random number like inside the shape or outside of it? And that way you can start to numerically approximate, you know, what value it has at any given point without having to analytically evaluate it. That was kind of a mathy explanation, but that's what the Metropolis Hastings algorithm really nailed down. Okay, so when I was a when I was a kid, I was at a science fair mm -hmm. and I saw this science experiment where they were dropping points uh, as randomly as they could in this square. And they had a circle drawn inside of the square. Mm -hmm. And based on the number of points that landed outside versus inside of the circle, mm -hmm. they were calculating pi. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that, that sounds pretty much like what we're talking about. Yeah, it's really similar. And if you have in the, in the limit where you have infinite points, you can get pi with arbitrary precision. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So to connect all of this back together, mm -hmm. you've got these hundred different neutrons that they're simulating. Each one of the neutrons has its own little Markov chain -y path, right? So you step each one of these neutrons through each of these points in the Markov chain. Yeah. Point one, point two, point three. Every single one of those points, there's a probability that it will go, let's say, left or right. Right, because each one is a is a physical interaction. It's bumping into a nucleus, or it's exiting the material, or something. All of these things could happen with some probability. Great, and that those probabilities are really difficult to compute. And yes. so that's where you use the Metropolis-Hastings algorithm. It's to take those the integrals of those weird probability functions. Yep. And to simplify, to, to make that computationally less expensive so that way you can do more of those things. Yep. And that's really the way that it's used today. Um, you hear a lot of times about Bayesian methods in machine learning and in general. And the thing about Bayesian methods is they require you to take integrals of kind of weird probability distribution mm -hmm. sometimes. And so if you have to do it analytically, you can only do these trivial, like not very interesting examples, but with something like Metropolis Hastings or it's, um, you know, bigger sibling, the Gibbs sampler is another one you hear sometimes. Okay. That makes Bayesian analysis tractable because we can do these computations. Linear Digressions is a podcast about data science and machine learning, produced and recorded in the studios of Udacity, a company dedicated to education. We've got some awesome courses made by people like Katie and me in data science and other tech fields. We should also remind you that all views expressed during this program were those of the speakers and not of Udacity. This is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time.